we have to be able to sustainably maintain a population of somewhere between 11 to 12 billion, you know, over the mm. next couple hundred years on this planet. So, and, and that's a, that's a huge challenge. Are we going to just destroy, you know, the environment and, and feed what we have, or are we going to actually go in and try to really try to solve this problem and make the idea of feeding the world more sustainable? Welcome to Science Town, a podcast about the most unique research community on the planet. With every episode, we will bring you cutting-edge tech, science, and startup culture through the eyes of pioneering men and women. Their journeys cross disciplines and cross borders in the pursuit of world-changing science. Hello, I'm Nicholas DeMille. And I'm Ben Stevens. Welcome to episode four of Science Town. When you think about increasing global agricultural yields, you might not immediately imagine doing so in harsh desert environments. Scorching sun, infertile soil and lack of water are but a few of the challenges facing the transformation of desert into farm. The alternatives, however, are equally unpalatable, bulldozing rainforest and other pristine environments for massive monocropping. In this episode, we explore some of the latest research into desert agriculture and why on earth anybody thinks it's a good idea. Rice is primarily eaten by humans uh, directly. And it's, it really is, uh, again, one of the most important food crops in the world. Uh, it feeds about half the population. And it's that, the, the rice-dependent population, that's expected to double by uh, 2050. That's Rod Wing, director of the Center for Desert Agriculture and professor of plant science at KAUST. So that's, the, that's really the, the big problem is, you know, how do, we, how do we feed our world without destroying our world? Uh, that's what we would call the 10 billion person problem. Yes. The 10 billion people question, question is, what, is what, right. the way I try to <laughs> yeah. try to describe it. I mean, it's really, the, the real number is expected to be about 9.6 billion, but I rounded it up because we're, no matter what, we're going to have 10 billion. And the, the UN uh, estimates are by, by the end of the century, we'll be at about 11 billion. So things are going to kind of slow down a little bit, and but still we have to be able to sustainably maintain a population of somewhere between 11 to 12 billion, you know, over the mm. next couple hundred years on this planet. So, and that's a, that's a huge challenge. So we're, we're really, uh, at a, uh, a bridge right now. Are, are, are we going to just destroy, you know, the environment and, and feed what we have? Or are we going to actually go in and try to really try to solve this problem and make the idea of feeding the world more sustainable? Mm-hmm. And it's the 10 million uh, projection. 10 billion. Sorry, 10 billion, yeah. Um, yeah. A conservative one? Is that with, you know, growing middle class, growing birth control in developing countries? That's, that's kind of the the average of, of uh, what we think is going to happen. And uh, again, these are UN estimates, but the the way i look at it, it it's really uh, essentially like a freight train it's you can't stop this and so we we need to um solve this problem in our lifetime yeah like right now
So it's a real urgent, urgent matter. I mean, and there's, and it's not just genetics, genomics, but, but that's going to, that is going to have an impact because it's going to allow us to grow things more sustainably. There are other ways to, you know, improve crop yields, but in the, in the long run, you want to have genetic material and in the, in the plants and the microbiomes that, that is going to be very, very sustainable and predictable. I'd like for you to sort of define this idea of natural variation and how that relates to both your work and its application. Okay, so from an evolutionary standpoint, the cereals share a common ancestor that uh, was around, let's say, 50, 60 million years ago. You know, I I guess we're looking at overall maybe 50 million years of evolutionary time that that the the organisms had had a chance to adapt to and, you know, different environments, different atmospheres, soil conditions, pressures and things like that. And it was only until recently that the world has domesticated crop plants. So uh, rice in particular, what what I work on that was domesticated approximately 10,000 years ago in Asia. And then there was a completely inde- independent domestication of another wild relative of rice uh, in Africa 3,000 years ago. So we've had two independent domestications and on separate continents. And then th- these rice varieties have, have spread throughout the world and have adapted to different environments. So now we, we have, I think overall in the world, we have about 600, 700,000 accessions of rice, to different varieties of rice that have been collected, that are in various gene banks. And they're, they're all, they've all been selected for, for different qualities and, and different environments. So they've been selected for, for the ability to grow in high altitudes um, under drought conditions. Collectively, you would call that natural variation. So it, already, it basically already exists. It's essentially every single gene in the genome in, in these genomes have all been tested, 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 tested by evolution, by, by man. And so what we're trying to do is, in our, in our research, is capture that natural variation. And then the next layer on top of that is to not only look at the, the genetic information from the plant itself, but also look at the genetic information from its, uh, what we call its microbiome. The plants associate with microbiomes in the in the in the soils above ground, below ground, and it's that that association also uh, affects their performance. So it's pretty, it's really fascinating, and mm. so so we're calling this kind of a new field of science. We're calling this uh, agro ecosystem genomics, where we're looking at the performance of the plant, uh, the the plant genotype, the microbiome genotype, and trying to identify the the optimal combinations that will permit optimal performance, you know, in, in the environment that you want it to grow in. Cutting edge tech, science, and startup culture. Science Town. Why is it a good idea to go to one of the hottest places on Earth and uh, arguably one of the most arid places? Yeah, sure. And try, and try to grow food. Why, why is that a thing? Uh, I think it's a thing for a few reasons. So one, if you have to look at local food security. That's Ryan Leffers, assistant professor at Texas A&M and co-founder of Red Sea Farms. To import things like vegetables, especially if you look at a low shelf life crop or a short shelf life crop like 
a lettuce or a leafy green, something like that, to import that crop, you have a significant amount of you know energy expended in getting it here, but then the quality of that crop goes down and you just lose a lot in shipping. And it's those crops that are really our nutrition sources. So, you know, we might look to things like bread or, um, you know, a grain-based food for calories, but we really have to look to fruits and vegetables for our nutritional intake. So that's one thing is local food security. I think another reason to look at deserts for things like fruits and vegetables, specifically in greenhouses I'm talking about, is that uh, while a greenhouse in a more northern climate would require significant amounts of heating, greenhouses in the local climate might not even need heating at all. Mm. And so, yes, you have to cool those greenhouses, but if you can do it with a sustainable resource like salt water, especially seawater, which is abundant, greenhouses could actually become more sustainable mm. than greenhouses in a northern climate. How long does it take? Let, let's say I harvest a, a head of lettuce. Yeah. Do I have four days before it's uh, brown and I'm not into it anymore? How, how, what's the timeline? Well, it depends how you store it. Uh, but with refrigeration, you're still looking at something like seven or eight days. You know, controlling the humidity or using small amounts of light actually increase the shelf life of the crop. Mm. But even with those, you're not looking at, you know, beyond 10 days. Mm -hmm. It takes about seven or eight days to get the produce here. Uh, unless you bring it in on an airplane right. and the carbon footprint of <laughs> crops flown on an airplane is significant right. and also the price of those products is significant. What is Red Sea Farms and what are you guys trying to do? So Red Sea Farms is a startup that Mark and I have been working on, focusing on delivering saltwater-based agriculture systems uh -huh. to the world. Uh, we're seeking to build a pilot-scale greenhouse, and that will use saltwater for evaporative cooling, because we need to do a lot of cooling in the local environment. And also, it will use... Um, either partially desalinated or diluted seawater in the irrigation of some of the crops we'll be growing. You talked about evaporative cooling. Yeah. What is that? So uh, traditionally, you use mechanical-based cooling, mechanical vapor compression. So it's air conditioning. Um, so an, an alternative to that is evaporative cooling, where you evaporate water. And it's in, in physics, it's the substitution of... Uh, kinetic energy for potential energy okay. or temperature for humidity. So what you do is you end up with an air source that comes in usually dry and hot and it exits humid and cool. Is hydroponics much more efficient? Is it In general, hydroponics is more efficient. It's sort of an additive effect, right? Because you control the environment to give the plant the temperature they want. Mm -hmm. uh, so you keep them comfortable. At the same time, you're giving them all of the food that they want through their roots. And so then crops in a, a hydroponic system in a controlled environment can produce significantly more than outdoors. You're looking at an average production of about two to three kilograms of tomatoes per square meter of land per year. 
if you take that tomato plant and put it indoors in a low, let's say low intensity greenhouse, you can get up to 20 or 30 kilograms per square meter per year. Of, 10 times. 10 times. And if you put that then into a higher quality greenhouse, we're looking at 50 to 60 kilograms per square meter per year. And um, if you add supplemental lighting so that you increase the daylight, uh, people have seen even up to like 90, you know, 80 to 90 kilograms per square meter per year. And that's with supplemental light and also supplemental carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. So you can significantly increase your output per uh, unit of land. Is hydroponic growth in a uh, greenhouse, is it much more um, able to be mechanized? Because from the outside, it seems like even if you have to have a farm, you've got to run the combine, you've got to do a lot of ancillary yeah. things with a few humans at least yeah sure where it seems like you could have almost a fully automated thing just running itself harvesting well both indoor and outdoor agriculture are trending in this direction mm-hmm. so if i look at outdoor agriculture um and you know even things like combines and tractors uh from when i grew up until now things have gotten significantly more Uh, roboticized and this is the precision agriculture trend so gps based agriculture precision application of things like seeds and spray and fertilizers Uh, and even to the point where we can look at now we have an online indication of harvest as we're combining so we know what parts of the field yield well and what parts don't and we can start to look at why So even outdoors, it's trending in that direction. But certainly indoors, there's a big trend towards um, big data and collecting all of this information and then processing it to improve the quality and the yield of the crops. Mm -hmm. And also robotics, so robot harvesters going in and picking the tomatoes or cutting the lettuce. The robots might not actually take over, but they'll almost definitely feed us yeah the robots will uh harvest your food maybe prepare it and bring it to you (laughs) i don't know uh but it's things are trending in that direction certainly that's fascinating yeah well best of luck with red sea farms and and with everything you guys are doing yeah thank you thanks for talking to us thank you Science Town, brought to you by Kaust. So we produce around 700 million tons of wheat every year globally. I mean, we lose about 15% of the global wheat harvest to disease. And, and I think you know, when we talk about the, the challenge of feeding 9 to 10 billion people, um, just by addressing a single problem, we could already make um, the substantial or a substantial contribution to producing more food. That's Simon Crassinger, Kaust Assistant Professor of Plant Science. Uh, because if you look at it, you know, the challenge really is we're going to have one to two billion more people on the planet by 2050. And we need to produce food for these people and there's not more space to do it. So we don't we don't have more agricultural land. So that means we need to produce more o- on the same amount of land. So I think that's that's the enormous challenge. Obviously, you've contextualized why it's an important crop, but uh, why is it? important to you what 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 drew you to study wheat i think what fascinated me um and that's that that's what 
it's making pathogens different from other stresses, such as, for example, drought or heat, um, pathogens are living organisms, which means they have the ability to adapt. Mm-hmm. So it's like a it's like a moving target. And what, what, what we often see is that you know resistances or disease resistance can break down because we see pathogen adaptation, and this can literally happen overnight. So there were there were several reports, for example, of um, you know newly emerging pathogen races that, that turn out to be very virulent and aggressive on wheat plants that have been resistant um, so far. And, and this, of course, causes a lot of problems if you suddenly have in a certain region a, a new pathogen that, destro- that destroys your crop. So I, I think this is what really fascinates me. You know, it's not just, you're not just looking at um, the plant, you also have to look at the pathogen and, and the combination of the two. I'm right in thinking that uh, wheat poses a challenge because its genome is is particularly large. Yes. Yeah. So the problem with wheat is that the genome is five times larger than the human genome. It's one of the largest plant genomes uh, that we work with. So when we try to understand what makes wheat resistant to disease, it's actually enormously challenging to, you know, f- essentially find out which gene in that massive genome uh, controls the resistance. And uh, how does um, molecular breeding come into this? Basically, molecular breeding refers to the ability to use information about the genome and the genetics and understanding you know, what kind of genes contribute to a certain stress resistance and to use that in breeding. So, so far, what we have done until, let's say, the 1980s, breeding was mainly done by looking at phenotypes. So you looked at the plants and you just select the plants that looked better or were more resistant but we didn't really understand the, what the molecular basis of that resistance was. And with increased knowledge in molecular biology and genetics and genomics, we have now the ability to understand the molecular causes of, of these resistances. We know where the genes are that confer this type of resistance, and we can use that information in breeding. So it's, it's, it's a shift from purely phenotype-based breeding to more molecular-based uh, breeding where we use molecular information and information on, on the DNA to you know, select the most or the best combination of genes that then result in the best possible plant. And um, that, that's obviously key to what you're doing. And are you finding you know, the pathogens are, if anything, increasing or getting stronger? Or you know, is, is the threat or, to our food security always on the rise? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, as I said, it's, it's pathogens are as much as a global as a regional problem. You know, I mean, we look at it globally, but of course, in certain regions, we have seen, as I said before, we have seen adaptation of pathogens to certain resistance genes and emerge of new pathogen races. I think what is really a threat is, is also uh, climate change, because nobody looked so far there's very little information of what climate change does to the pathogens. And what we are seeing now, for example, is that, you know, there's a shift in pathogens that are prevalent in a certain region. Mm. So, for example, uh, when you look at the UK, we see pathogens on wheat that have so far only been recorded in, in warmer countries, such as Italy and Spain. And this is, of course, a problem because, let's say, the breeding programs and the wheat breeders in the UK, they didn't necessarily look at these pathogens in their breeding programs because it was just simply not a threat. And I think this is a big problem that we see now this shift in 
importance of certain pathogens and it's completely unpredictable where this is going. So I think from a, from this point of view, yes, I mean, pathogens are, as I said, the problem really is that mm. they are adapted, they are living and, and we can, it's hard to predict what, what's going to happen next. You're listening to Science Town. What sort of landscape are you dealing with? It's quite a lot further up country and it crosses into several other countries. Are, are we talking a traditional desert landscape? Yes, it is a uh, very dry area and it was most certainly uh, desert. I mean, it's, it's near the border of uh, more semi-desert regions. It's starting to get a touch of influence from the Mediterranean. That's Mark Tester, Associate Director of the Centre for Desert Agriculture at Kaust and co-founder of Red Sea Farms. He's also head of the Future of Food sector at NEOM, a $500 billion megacity the size of Belgium, which is being built by Saudi Arabia in an area that straddles the Saudi, Egypt and Jordanian borders. But it is essentially a very dry location with a lot of rocks and mountains, a lot of very long coastline. I mean, the assets that Neon has is, of course, lots of sun, lots of sea and lots of land. And uh, being there at the border of Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Jordan also places it in a remarkable, unique geopolitical region, which I think can also be what it is definitely an advantage in the long term. What sort of opportunities is it offering you so far? This is a very interesting opportunity to develop a whole food ecosystem, including the regulatory framework, I should say, from scratch, where there is an emphasis on sustainability and technology. And so this plays right into my long-term interest of using technology and science and innovation to feed the world and both provide a pathway, a delivery pathway for our research which we've been doing over the last 30 years and over the last six at CALS and also an opportunity for collaboration between NEOM and CALS for um, R&D and for developing some of the strengths that CALS has in particular in plant science research. So I can see this providing an opportunity for, for example, domesticating crops that are highly salt tolerant. I mean, one of the advantages of NEOM is it's got lots of water, just salty water. So if we can learn to use that salty water for food production, that really could be um, quite revolutionary step change. And we have with genomics, which the cows plant science, and cows more broadly, I should say, is very strong at. We have opportunities to really accelerate the domestication of new crops, in particular crops that have got extreme salinity tolerance. And I think that's interesting. You also have opportunities to improve dates. I mean, there is no date breeding program in the world. It's unbelievable. So we now have date genomics. Genomics can turbocharge breeding and provides us with an opportunity to improve genetically the date palm, which is you know, a remarkable plant in many ways, but it surely needs many improvements. 
Why has, um, would you say, that marginal land become a focus of research in, in recent years? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> Some ways it's all that we've got left. <laughs> and marginal lands are also where poor people tend to live, get pushed to the margins. And so for me, I believe very sincerely that we need to be supporting developing technologies that will enable people, especially poor people, to feed themselves better, more cheaply, more sustainably. And so um, focusing on marginal lands, marginalised, you like, people, I think is a very important thing to do, partly because of what land is left and partly because that is often the land where we help them we need to help most. And I, I, I highlight Pakistan, mm-hmm. very important. A Muslim country, it's heading towards a quarter of a billion people, and it's feeding them in an unsustainable system. It's, it's really not a good prospect, and that really does concern me very much. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where our primary targets for impact should be. أنا بجمع نبات رقم مية واثنين مية واثنين معي هون We went out to Hadi Asham, a farm east of Jeddah run by King Abdelaziz University, to experience local growing conditions. When we were there, we spoke with a number of scientists to understand how they are making agriculture both less water-intensive and more profitable for local farmers. So we are um, at Hadasham uh, village, which is about 140 uh, kilometers from Jeddah, east to Jeddah. That's Magni Musa, a faculty member at King Abdelaziz University in Jeddah. Uh, Hadasham before, before 15 years, was uh, the vegetable market for the all Mecca region. So um, we have a lot of farmers here uh, planting vegetables like um, uh, watermelon, melon, tomato, cucumber, and they feed the people um, in Mecca region. Um, with reducing water and the water quality, the farmers uh, already stop around us and few already running their, uh, their uh, farms. So, so this isn't something that's continuing, it's, it's largely stopped? Yeah. Is that because of... Changes in the economy or changes in the ecology? No, it is um, several things really affected this uh, this uh, this issue. Water lake, because we have um, shortage of water due to few rains uh, a year, except this year, of course. Mm-hmm. Another thing um, is um, people don't like to go in, in agriculture anymore after they good job in the, in the cities. So. They do a um, light job than to do a hard job like uh, like farmers. Um, one more issue affecting the productivity of agricultural products here: the importation, open importation from outside. Yeah, so they import majority about 90% of their agricultural demands from outside. It is absolutely mind-blowing that we can do irrigation now with 50% less water. I mean, 
you know, imagine it from the from a food or water consumption from a human or any other living system point of view. Uh, this is uh, quite an extraordinary achievement and it really aligns well with this 2030 National Transformation Program of the Kingdom where they want to cut down their agricultural water consumption by 50%. Uh, I really expected those plants to die. It blows my mind that they are not dead and they are, they are, they are functional there. That's Iman Shumishra. He's an assistant professor of environmental science at Kaust and co-founder of SandX. Like, give us context for what we're standing in here right now. Okay, well this is a joint project between KAUST and KAU. Uh, in our lab we have developed a material which we can use to enhance the water use efficiency for the production of food. So we are testing it here under uh, real field conditions in Saudi Arabia. Um, so describe what that is exactly. It's a sand that has a, a treatment and then you're placing it at the base of tomato. So in this plot, what exactly are you guys testing? Uh, yeah, sure. So, yeah, the material is made of two very uh, simple and inexpensive ingredients. It's uh, common sand and uh, wax. And we harness a nanotechnology to make this material so we can coat up to a ton or two tons of sand using a kilo of this material, of using paraffin wax. So the resulting material is really water repellent. It hates water, it remains very dry. So when we put our material as a as a layer on top of wet soil in a field, then water, it really prevents evaporation of water. As a result, plants have more moisture in the soil, so they grow stronger, better, happier, and they produce more food. Here we are, uh, we've been running field trials in collaboration with Professor Mark D. Musa of King Abdulaziz University in Jeddah. And for, it's been three years, and uh, we've been running uh, a variety of crops. Uh, tomato has been, uh, uh, we've been testing it for the last three years. This year we are looking at uh, green pepper and uh, wheat uh, in addition. Uh, why, why tomatoes? How, like, how did that come to be uh, the predominant crop? It's a high-value crop, so we, we considered that if in agriculture, uh, of, uh, economic margins are rather small, so if we are asking a farmer to add an extra material on top, uh, then you know the obvious question will be, why should I do it? What what economic value does it give to me? So if if we can demonstrate a uh, significant enhancement in tomato productivity, which goes in thousands of dollars per hectare, uh, then obviously a farmer would not mind spending another two hundred, three hundred dollars per hectare on this. Yeah. Uh, okay, so basically here we are testing uh, different conditions of irrigation, uh, different conditions of uh, mulching. Uh, we have uh, high or normal irrigation and also a low irrigation case where we're applying 50% of the water. Okay, so the fields on the left are 50% irrigation. The ones on these uh, two sides are 100% irrigation, let's say. That's Cal's doctoral student and Sandex co-founder Adair Gallo. Um, we're also testing, uh, comparing the hydrophobic sand mulching with other commercial mulching like plastics uh, of uh, two different colors, black and uh, clear plastic, to see what are going to be the effects on heating the soil or uh, helping the plants to grow. Uh, also uh, regarding the hydrophobic sand, we're testing different application rates. So we, we have like from bare soils just exposed to five millimeter of uh, hydrophobic sand, mm -hmm. up to 15 millimeters of this hydrophobic sand. Okay. 
In the lab experiments, we have noticed that with uh, 5 millimeters, we reduce the evaporation by 60%, and uh, with 10 millimeters, we reduce, reduce the evaporation rate by 80%. How does that compare to plastic or what you're seeing in these plots? Can you, do you have a number or... Well, uh, this is the first year we're doing uh, experiments with plastic mulch mm. in the field. We have done in the greenhouse. Mm. We observed uh, actually similar results for the hydrophobic sand mm. and for the plastic mulch in the greenhouse. Mm. Uh, but, you know, greenhouse is kind of like an ideal condition. We have a maximum temperature of uh, 28 degrees Celsius. Right. So it, it's, not, it's not that uh, harsh environment. We, ex we expect here in the field to, to see a, a better benefit for, for the sand, actually. Uh, because you know these plastic mulches, it, it, they act kind of like a greenhouse, so they trap the heat. Um, mm. So, so that, that raises a, an interesting question: Does the sand trap heat as well, or, or does that uh, allow more sort of what, what are you breathing from the soil? Yeah, exactly. The the sand, you know, it's porous, so it, it allows some kind of uh, air and, and, and water movement. Yeah. So yeah, that uh, small fraction of water that evaporates from the sand, it helps to cool down the, the soil. And actually we have seen that, we have measured the temperature and it's a little bit uh, cooler uh, underneath the sand mulch, uh, up to like three, two to three degrees Celsius cooler than the exposed soil. The idea was that in the desert, you have a, an, a laboratory situation that has been shaped over thousands or millions of years. That's Herbert Hurt, professor of plant science at KAUST. The plants that are living there, right in the middle of nothing, they somehow survive. So how do they do that? Mm. It rains one or three times maybe maximum per year, mm. and they can grow. So our <coughs> research actually suggested that microbes that live in association with these plants um, are symbionts and these are helping the plant to survive under these extreme conditions. They help the plant to get better water, better nutrients. So for example, we found that there's zero nitrogen in the soil. How do the plants get uh, nitrogen? Well, they have to, they only can get it from, the, from associated bacteria that can fix uh, atmospheric nitrogen and transform it into nitrate, which the plants can use. Um, and so we, basically started collecting plants from many different deserts in the world. And now we have, I think, the biggest collection of desert microbes that are symbionts, plant symbionts in the world, over 1,500 different uh, strains. And then we started to test them whether we can actually use these strains to help also make agriculture uh, viable under extreme conditions, such as here or in, in many places where actually agriculture is not done because it's too poorly performing. So far we can say the, those microbes that work in the lab work as, as good in, in, the, in the field or in the greenhouse and on all kinds of species that we've tested, vegetables or, or cereals or uh, other crops. So that's, that's an amazing thing. So here basically we have been using nine different of our best performing microbes on, on, on barley and on wheat. Well, and it, and it seems like, as you said, just millennia of natural selection has chosen for you out of the desert these sort of the hardiest, toughest, most effective 
bugs. So, so then what do you do from here? You prove that they can work in the field. That then, what's your sort of your next uh, your next move from there? Uh, well, we're right there. We're right there. That we say, how do we get actually these kind of discoveries uh, to the application side? That the farmers really get this. So, on the one hand, of course, big farmers. Uh, should get this and so we are just setting up a company and we have partners uh, that will distribute that in Saudi Arabia or in, in other parts of the world and uh, so that's that's the next point actually to get it onto to the farm into the hands of the farmers on the field so to the naked eye again these two plots look very similar these wheat plots here but it, it seems that this barley here to our left is bigger and greener and no, more successful. No, it's actually just being harvested. Like, Those have cut, been harvested, okay. We just okay. cut this one. Okay. So, <laughs> so we cut <laughs> this week. I was going to say, you guys had a rough season <laughs> with these here. Good, okay. No, the harvest is already done. Now. But these ones look nice. Yes. <laughs> you, you were identified as an agricultural specialist immediately. Yes. <laughs> Thank you to all the scientists who took time out to speak to us for this episode. Science Town is produced by Mark Bowes, Alex Arias and Ryan Yang Yang. I'm Ben Stevens with co-host Nicholas DeMille. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology also known as KAUST. You can find us on all major social channels, wherever you get your podcasts, and at sciencetown.kaust.edu.sa.